0: As we, in our worship, continue the the back-and-forth dialogue, the response uh, with God here, God begins by calling us to worship. We respond in prayers and in singing through our words. And God is also now going to continue addressing us through His Word uh, in a a more extended time through the preaching of the Word here. And we are currently in Mark chapter 12. Uh, We're going through the Gospel of Mark. Starting to come to closer to an end, we're in some of the final chapters of Mark here, uh, looking at the the earthly ministry of Jesus, and this here is in his last week before he's going to the cross to be crucified. And so in, in this time here, if, you've, uh, if you remember from where we are, he's made a lot of the, the, uh, the religious leaders upset uh, for some of the things that he's done, for the claims that he's made, and really just exposing them in their hypocrisy and for who they are. And so we're going to pick up this morning in Mark chapter 12, looking at verses 13 through 17. Uh, Let's pray first as we listen to what what God has to say. Heavenly Father, uh, these words here that you have for us, the words that were spoken by your son Jesus um, many years ago, the words that were inspired here then by your Holy Spirit, uh, written down by the authors, um, the words that we are listening to this morning, it's all your word. It's, it was, had its effect then and it continues to have its effect on us now, still today. We ask that you would humble us as we come to it, that your spirit would be alive live at work in us this morning, going forth through your word here to bring life. To bring life, not just uh, increasing our faith, but to bring life, a life of flourishing, a life of, that is uh, more in accordance with your holiness and your will and your desires. Give us eyes to see this, and give us ears and willing hearts and to be formed and fashioned by what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verse 13, this is the word of God. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen. Well, after the Lord brought Israel out, from bondage in Egypt after he began leading them in those first days through the wilderness and he brought them to Mount Sinai. Uh, The Lord was making a covenant with his people Israel and Moses was up on the mountain receiving the words of the covenant. The covenant is being established and then Israel at the foot of the mountain makes a golden calf Uh, led by Aaron, the, the high priest who says, these, O Israel, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What they were doing was they were confusing an idol with the real Lord God, the one who is their actual real savior. They were confusing the two of them. And there is a prominent idol that is often confused still today in American culture. It's an idol that's not in the likeness of a golden calf, but it takes the form of another animal, usually one of two animals. It's either a golden donkey or it's a golden elephant. It's the false god of politics. Not that politics aren't an important part of life. Don't hear me on that. But like the golden calf to Israel, it can sometimes be confused with the real god, Politics are often ascribed a weight of glory and hope that it could never bear. And like a god, like a false god, we swear allegiance, maybe to a particular political party or a vision of of politics or some sort of ideology, and we gather around the golden donkey or the golden elephant or, hey, if there's any libertarians, we won't forget you either. But we celebrate when it's victorious, right? And then we are disconsolate, when our political ideas are defeated. We proselytize, right? We try to convert others and pointing out the failures of other gods. And it becomes a locus of unity for us. We come together and we either unite around it or we disunify along the the, the boundaries. We We want to maintain separation from others, perhaps maybe even to remain clean in a way. And in some cases, that golden image is even set up in the sanctuary of the church. And we've even seen over the last few years, some people will even go to holy war over it. And like any other false god, the political idol holds out the false promise of life. If people will adopt a certain stance or they will align themselves with a particular party, then then life and, and flourishing will truly abound. But what's most telling in this here is that we might rejoice when our party has control. But what about when the other side has power? All right, after an election doesn't go our way, we comfort ourselves with the, with the reality of God's sovereignty, right? You know what? My party lost, my, the, my candidate lost, but you know what? I just have to trust in God still being sovereign. Or do we, only, do we always comfort ourselves, though, with God's sovereignty only in those times? Or always, do we also comfort ourselves with God's sovereignty when our own political candidates or party happens to take power? Because after all, all elected officials are flawed and they will all undoubtedly fail at times. God's sovereignty ought to be a comfort to us at all times, not just in the times where we come away defeated. Now, I bring this up here because the scene, the scene here that Jesus has here as politics on full display. We have two groups of people, two groups that were that were related here with, with differing uh, religious or quasi-political perspectives. We had the Pharisees and the Herodians. They both come to Jesus and they ask about the matter of taxes. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes or not? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? to the Roman government or not. Now taxes for these people, it was more than just simply paying money to Rome. Taxes were a sensitive and a very traumatic topic to these Jews who were living in Palestine. It was a reminder of their foreign occupation by the Roman Roman oppressors for a people who were very independent, for a people who, whose history had been marked and been defined by God, by the Lord God as the one who, who, who redeemed them and who brought them out and who intended for them to be, to be a, a people for his own possession. The, the, the Roman emperor over them and having to pay taxer, taxes as a symbol of Caesar's d- dominion, that was having to acknowledge that. That was humiliating. It was offensive to a proud people who had been defined by the lordship of Yahweh, not the lordship of Caesar. Now, no one liked paying taxes. I mean, after all, who likes paying taxes? But there were differing views and perspectives on the issue. On one hand, you had the extremists who said, no taxes, we're not paying taxes. We're independent, and you could consider these to be the, the political conservatives. But then on the other hand, you had the compromisers who said, ah, you know what, we'll pay taxes. After all, we do get safety and benefits, and we want to be liked by the Romans. And you could consider these as the political progressives of the day. And you had the Pharisees and the Herodians taking opposite views. The Pharisees you would consider to be those, those, those conservatives, while as the Herodians would be considered as the progressives. And they both come to Jesus together here, not though trying to ask him to settle their dispute, but they come to him trying to entrap him. Because he has upset the religious sensibilities and thrown their power into question, and they want Jesus gone. And perhaps they can put him in a dilemma that will get him in trouble. And they come with these flattering words in verse 14. We know that you speak the truth, You know, we know that you have the words of God and they're trying to get put his honesty on display so that they can get a real answer from him. And they're forcing him to take one side or the other, to inevitably get into trouble. Because if he says, well, pay your taxes, then he'll upset the entire Jewish uh, political ideas and he'll face their wrath. He's going to be unliked in their eyes. But if he says, don't pay the taxes then, that he's going to upset the Roman authorities, and he's going to have to deal with them at that point. He's going to be seen as an insurrectionist. But here, though, you have these these two opposing political sides that come together united. And it shows that politics don't have to divide us as fiercely as they do. We have an example that something beyond politics can unify across the aisles here. But they're united, though, in their common hatred and their opposition to Jesus. And if common hatred brings political enemies together like we see here, what about common love? What about a common love of Jesus? What about the, tra- the transcendence of a spiritual union, capital S spiritual, of a union that binds us together in the Holy Spirit, in, the, in Jesus Christ? What about where differences can be put aside because of a mutual love of Jesus and the common goal of the kingdom? Now, we might have brothers and sisters with legitimate political differences, but who are also willing to put those aside. What about a people here who are united together with God's loving reconciliation, being reconciled with him, being reconciled together here, and then pulling their disparate hearts together? Wouldn't that be something? the body of Christ is to put away the earthly divides, even their political divides. And it takes something transcendent. It takes something divine. It takes something spiritual to unite us together. And not only to unite us, but to hold us together despite our own efforts to pull apart. Now, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they come together and try to entrap Jesus. He doesn't fall for it. Instead, he shows his wisdom. Now, he doesn't take one side or the other, and he doesn't even take a mediating position or a moderate position. Instead, he shows the wise and correct way to view the question. He says, okay, give me a denarius, which is what you would pay. All right, There's a coin there. He says, whose image is on the denarius here? It's Caesar's image on the currency. It was inscribed with his name, Tiberius Caesar, on the currency. And according to the thought of that day, The currency then belonged to him, to Caesar, because it bore his image. It's the same sort of idea when I was a kid and I was warned not to put pennies on the train tracks because it was destroying federal property currency the currency bore his image and it, therefore it acknowledged his right in their minds to demand and to collect taxes since the coin with his image because it had his picture on it because it had his name engraved on it it was therefore then his property he owned it and then there were obligations that came with using his property therefore jesus says to pay then what you owe to the authorities pay your tax Give to Caesar what's his. It bears his image, right? So acknowledge that. He says, it doesn't matter if you agree with the tax. It doesn't matter if you resent Caesar's rule. There are obligations which come from the government above you, from Rome. And therefore, he says, obey him. Give what they, give, give what they demand. But he doesn't stop there, though, either. He also says, give to God also what belongs to him. Take a look at the denarius. Whose image? It's Caesar's image. But there's another image to consider as well. It's the image of God. The image of God which is stamped and graven upon every person. Every person is created in his image. Now if Caesar's image on that coin, it acknowledged his right to demand what was owed to him, well, the same goes with God. He owns you. You are stamped with his image. Regardless of whether or not you follow or acknowledge him, he still has demands upon you. He owns you because you bear his image. Because he created you in his image. And biblically, according to the biblical account, he created everyone as his image. So God's image upon you is not just limited to one part of you. It's not just limited to your soul or to your mind or to your rational faculties or your spiritual being. None of that there. It's not just, or sorry, it's not just one of those things. You are his image in your entirety. You as a person bear your image or bear his image. And so God's claims to sovereignty and ownership isn't just over part of you, it's over all of you, over all of who you are. And all of what then, what we owe to him, all of his demands, is all of us, all of who we are. It's the whole person. He demands your entire self to render him obedience and love from the soul, which expresses itself by the body, right? It's from the heart and thoughts, which then flows into our actions and out through our words. And it means that we must also remember his authority and not just government authority. God has the highest and most inherent authority over you. And there are more than one obligations that, that you have. You have obligations to earthly authorities, to your political authorities, but, you're, but not all these authorities are on the same level. God's authority takes precedence. So the root idea in all of this here is honor your civil authorities alongside your allegiance to your sovereign God. Honor your civil authorities alongside your allegiance to your sovereign God. I know it's taken a little bit to set this up here, but I want to look at three affirmations that can be deduced from Jesus' words. Three affirmations that Jesus' words make about all of this. And we need to remember these are frameworks It's not an exhaustive or an intricate political theology that's being laid out here, but they're frameworks for us and they provide the necessary structure that's then fleshed out in real life. Three affirmations from Jesus' words and the first is this. Civil authority and God's authority are not incompatible. Civil authority and God's authority are not incompatible. And that might seem pretty obvious, But it hasn't always felt that way over the last few years. I mean, we've gone, you know, going through all the times with COVID and all of the battles which erupted and some of them even going into the religious spheres. Things like shutdowns, Zoom over, you know, church services over Zoom, masks in in, in service or not. The cries of we must obey God over man and the government or God over government, right? And that's true as we've looked here. Yet sometimes, though, it's been articulated in ways that diminish the legitimacy of human government. It's not an either-or. And the difficult question is, and it was, how to honor God's authority and man's authority in ways that respect both. Now, Jesus tells us to obey both. And they're not incompatible. To obey Caesar, obey your civil and human authorities, and obey God. Both are to be honored. Honoring one doesn't give an out for the other. Now, honoring, obeying government isn't necessarily infringing upon God's rule. Right? God works in the world through means. He governs through means. That's com- God's common rule administered by government. It is accountable to him. And that doesn't mean that the government's always right. I think we all know that. But human authority, though, is established by God for the common good of society. It's to keep order. That's what it's supposed to do, to keep order. Every person in society has a sin nature, right? Can you imagine if no laws existed to keep our sin nature in check? I mean, can you imagine the terror of living in a world like that? That's what, that's what, what government's there for. It's to keep order. But meanwhile, though, God also has demands to be obeyed. Being obedient to God doesn't put a person over government or authority. Now, unless the authority is enforcing evil in a particular situation, obeying God actually means obeying the government. Jesus says, pay your taxes. And doing so is to remain in obedience to the authority above you. And now certainly civil government has limits. And those arguments were made during COVID and they're made in, in debates on religious bodies not being able to meet there. And when we think about about Obeying God, and we think about obeying government, those sorts of issues always spring to mind first, and those are legitimate. But aren't those the exceptions, though? Aren't those the exception times? The bigger issue here that affects us on an everyday basis that we may not even like because it's personal is not when can I disobey, but how can I obey? How can I obey the government? especially towards a government or a government party or an individual that I don't like. Second affirmation that we can pull from Jesus' words is that civil authority is legitimate and it's to be obeyed. Civil authority is legitimate and it's to be obeyed. Its institution is legitimate. Civil authorities serve as God's servants of his authority over the common kingdom in which we all live. It is for the upholding of society. It's for the punishing of evil. It's for the promotion of good. We read some of that there in our our New Testament reading this morning from 1 Peter 2. Thus, because of all of that, it's non-redemptive. It's a means of preserving order. Now, non-redemptive means that it isn't a means of salvation. It's not a means of hope. It's not a means of renewal. It's not a means of restoration here because none of that can get to the root of the world's problems. It can just simply hold it in check. But rather, it provides order. It provides, it provides stability. Hopefully here with the end goal that the gospel of Jesus can actually go forth, right? Have people living in a world of peace and, and, and terror that's in check. Chaos in check so that, that then the gospel can actually go forward. And God uses those times. I mean, even in the early church time, you had the Pax Romana. You had the, 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 the time of, of peace all across the Roman Empire. And that's what allowed, one of the, or one of the factors that allowed the gospel and the word of God to move forth uh, with relative ease and, and, and speed. It's non-redemptive. Government's non-redemptive. But it's still legitimate nonetheless. I think that's the call for us, then, to not put more upon it than it can bear. Don't put all of our hopes, all of our dreams, everything upon it there, or else your hope and your dreams will inevitably collapse with it. Or they will ebb and flow. Your hope will ebb and flow with the political times. Now, legitimacy doesn't mean competence. We all know that there's plenty of levels of government incompetency. All sides should agree on that. Similarly, legitimacy also doesn't equal trustworthiness. And so, vote. I think there's a, if if government is and civil authority is legitimate, then vote. Be involved. Look for competence. Look for trustworthiness. But despite incompetence, despite trust issues, still, what does Jesus say? What does God's word say? It says to honor and obey. It doesn't say you need to trust them. It doesn't mean that you need to convince yourselves that they're doing an okay job. It's just honor and obey them. See, competency and trustworthy is irrelevant towards honoring and obeying. They're not trying to earn your obedience. You're just to obey. And it also doesn't mean, though, obeying while checking your brain at the door either. God places authorities over us. We are to obey them in the order that they are setting forth. And again, there might be a legitimate time for us to consider disobeying. But again, isn't that the exception? And in considering what is an exception, let's also consider this. That even idolatrous authority is to be obeyed. Authority that doesn't honor God. The Roman Empire, in which Jesus is talking about here... With that coin even here, the Roman Empire had a deeply religious aspect to it. There was a, the, the Roman imperial cult, which upheld Caesar, which upheld the emperor as divine, and there was worship that involved the worship of Caesar. All right, the the, the phrase Jesus is Lord, that was a direct antithesis to the common cry of Caesar is Lord. And it was even marked all over the currency, that denarius, that coin that Jesus was holding along with, his, with, the, with the, the image of Caesar, Tiberius on there. It also said this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine August. And then you flip it over, it said Pontifex Maximus, high priest. Caesar and his own money screamed idolatry, it screamed blasphemy, and the empire, the Roman Empire, was built upon that. But Jesus doesn't make an exception. He just says, pay your taxes. No, there's no exception for a government in antithesis, or no exception for a government in antithesis to the true Lord God. Now, Mark, as he is writing this here, he's writing particularly with Gentile readers, especially with Roman readers in mind. And he's telling them this. And even he's basing a lot of his testimony from Peter's testimony. And again, we had those words from from Peter this morning in our New Testament reading. Honor Honor the emperor, right? Obey Caesar there. There's no quick out, there's no easy out for honoring the emperor and honoring their authority. And yet this was the government and this was the authority that they were both writing into. Both Mark with, his, apo- or with the, his gospel here and Peter with his letter. Now, the purpose of, re- of government isn't to, re- to regulate religion but to provide stability and justice. It's a common grace institution. It's to promote and preserve order. A, a redemptive grace institution. The only redemptive grace institution, the only institution where, where God's merciful, saving grace goes forth is the church. All right, we've been proclaim, or we've been we've been ordered to proclaim the gospel, to to give out the grace of God for, for sinners, to display the person and work of Jesus Christ, to hold him out. All right, all for the glory of this merciful God. And then when, but when we confuse them, when we confuse the church with a common grace institution, then something like the, the civil government, it's to diminish the work and the call of the church. And we put too much weight, weight that was never intended by God upon the government. We also have to remember this that Jesus himself submitted to the civil authorities, even the Roman authorities, even the idolatrous ones, to the Roman authorities here, paying taxes to Caesar, to the Jewish civil authorities. See, Jesus, though, also submitted to all of the authorities above him as the Son of God, as the one who instituted earthly authority. And part of his humiliation and his ministry for coming into the world here, entering into creation, taking on human flesh, was also then submitting himself to all of the earthly authorities over him at every level, all the way from his parents, all the way up to the government, all the way up to God the Father. He did that, though, as a true human. He did that in situations just like you and I face. And he did it to accomplish all righteousness. Because everything that Jesus did was righteous. And he did it to fulfill the laws, the laws of God, for honoring authority over his people. See, part of Christ's, Christ's obedience, part of his righteousness that he lived, is what he gives to us. Or sorry, part of Christ's obedience and righteousness that he gives to us is also what he lived. It's how he submitted himself to to authority, to government, and to God. That righteousness is given to us by faith. His submission, though, also shows that there's a place for submission, even if we don't like it. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. It doesn't matter if we don't agree with them, or if the, the, the ordinance or the agenda is flawed. Jesus certainly went through his share, right? But the third that I would like to look at is honor your authorities in ways that honor God. Honor your authorities in ways that honor God. All right? Render to God what is God's. And that means burying God's image and being owned by Him. If we're to follow His laws and ethics foremost over government, then what's His law say? It says, Love your neighbor. It says, regard others as fellow image bearers. Regard them with dignity. It requires us to be consistent in obeying God's laws than over over government. And so if the exception is righteous disobedience, then the norm is treating political opponents, people from other sides, treating the government as image bearers. Because people in government are image bearers. There are people on the political spectrum on the other side are, are image bearers. And even for for you moderates here, people on both your left and to your right, they're both image bearers. Donald Trump is an image bearer. Joe Biden is an image bearer. Now, there might be legit complaints that you have with government or with certain individuals, right? Those Those might be legit complaints, but do you make those complaints and do you hold them in a way that also acknowledges the image of God that he has stamped upon them? Bearing God's image also means not treating them as more than an image-bearer. The people on your side aren't any more special than the other. The leaders on your side aren't any more of a savior or a god. So honor your authorities and honor the government, but not as you honor God, though. Honor God as savior and sovereign. Because the government doesn't have any claim over you in the world as God does as the supreme, supreme sovereign Lord who has created all things and who, is, who upholds all things with a care that, and, and intimacy that government could never have. See, government doesn't forgive either as God does. Government is not very forgiving, but you know who is? God. He loves to forgive because he gave his son. God do, or Government doesn't give as God the Father gives. Who gave his son Jesus for the sake of his people, for life and freedom and righteousness and joy and eternal life. Government doesn't serve you in the way that Jesus does. It never could. In a self-sacrificial way, willing to lay aside his own power to go and hang on a cross for you for your sins government doesn't sacrifice as Jesus did. It doesn't make the sacrifices that he did by hanging upon the cross. The thing is also, government doesn't change the heart. It can never change the heart as the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God who, who renews us, who renews that image that we've been created him to grow more in holiness and to grow more in love and faith and righteousness. See, honoring God may mean that there are times when political law is in direct contradiction to God's law. But again, isn't that the exception? Remember the context of what's going on here. But rather than focusing on what is an exception, perhaps what's more necessary in our hearts on an everyday basis is to honor civil government, not begrudgingly. And that's to honor God's will. See, God's will isn't only exercised in public policy. God's will is also in the heart. When we pray, thy will be done, in the Lord's Prayer, we aren't just talking about your will be done in the government spheres. What about also, though, your own heart? We're praying for your will be done, God, to be also in my heart. And have you ever actually prayed that God would change your heart to obey the government better? with a willing and an ungrudging heart, that's also his will. The Spirit of God, though, can do the unthinkable. The Spirit of God can renew us within and can change our hearts to respect and obey our authorities with the whole person. Our hope isn't in government. Our hope is in the God who redeems, in the God who is making all things new. After all, earthly citizenship is temporary and it will pass away. Heavenly citizenship, though, is undefiled. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you by faith. Friends, you've been bought by the blood of Jesus who gave us to redeem us from this evil age. So Jesus doesn't put a flag for us to rally under, though. Jesus gives us a better sign. He gives us a better symbol for us to come under, and that is bread and a cup. He gives us the signs, the symbols of a bread and cup to come under. His body and blood, signs of his body and blood. Because that's where freedom is found. That's where real freedom is found. The promises of freedom and life transcending any other idea or vision because it is communion with the Lord God. And that is what unites Christians all across the political spectrum. It's what unites Christians all across the world. It is what has united Christians all throughout history and will all the way until Jesus comes back on that day. His union for us and found with him is there. It is his promise to bring us all together here around his banquet table in peace and joy. That's what's symbolized here in this table that we're about to come to. And so may he keep us until that day let's pray lord god these are truths which may convict us deeply there's nothing like a good political conversation that is oftentimes raises our blood pressure but in these times though god when we think about these truths, when we think about your rule and your reign, would you please bring us back again to the foot of the cross and humble us? Would you give us eyes to see your truth, the truth that Jesus has put forth here, and by your spirit, because we need his work in our life, would you change us? Change us into being wise, wise people who both love you and honor you and also want to obey your word and honor our authorities. So that the world might see our honorable conduct as we serve you and as we serve our neighbor. Continue to press the implications of the image of God that you have put upon all people uh, to see those in the everyday moments of our lives. Prepare us as we come to the table very shortly here. In Jesus' name, amen.